Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's new live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration, and today is day 34. You actually thought it was like third year, right? You've been going on forever. We uh, celebrated President's Day this week, a chance to reflect on the presidency and the current president. Uh, who just passed his one month in office. The big news of the day, of course, uh, is uh, that uh, that NASA found seven Earth-sized planets um, orbiting a nearby star, raising the very real possibility that we will find intelligent life somewhere in the universe. Now, admit it, you, you were waiting for a punchline there, right? You, 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 thought, you thought that was going to take a cheap shot there. Well, in the last week, you saw the resignation of the National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, for lying about his conversation with the Russian ambassador... Uh, New immigration deportation guidelines. Uh, The president belatedly denounces anti-Semitism. He declares that the media is the enemy of the people, although I'm guessing that he's probably never seen that Ibsen play. I'm just just guessing. Um, New poll shows uh, that uh, Trump's approval rating has dropped. He is uh, now down to 55 percent disapproval, 38 percent approved. Gets strong marks for leadership and intelligence, very low marks for empathy, level-headedness, and the ability to unite the country, and yes, he is, in fact, still tweeting. We have a very, very special uh, special guest today. Um, uh, Gary Kasparov is a chess grandmaster, Russian dissident, um, who was arrested and beaten in his native Russia for opposing Vladimir Putin. Since 2013, he's lived with his family in, in effect, in exile in New York City. He's now the chairman of the Human Rights Foundation, and his book, Winter is Coming, is, a, is really a prescient detailing of Putinism's rise and the menace it poses for the world. Um, well, it is my pleasure to introduce you, Thank uh, you to, me, to, to meet you, to have you here. And I want to tell, tell the audience something that I told you before we came on the air. I had a piece uh, in the New York Times uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, what, why, the, why nobody cares about the president's lying, which, of course, people do care. But in that piece, I quote something that you wrote that really stuck with me and I think was really the centerpiece of the whole piece. And this is what, what, what you wrote. The point of modern propaganda is not only to misinform or push an agenda. It is to exhaust your critical thinking, to annihilate truth. What did you mean by that? Oh, it comes from my experience growing up in the Soviet Union in, in, the, in the dictatorship. And it's quite important that people who grew up like myself in these conditions, they're quite sensitive to propaganda and what propaganda can do with your brains. You know, there's, there are always brainwashing techniques. In the Soviet Union or old-style dictatorships, it was um, very simple, you know. So they cut you from independent source of information. It's, you know, you were starving, you know. You just had to listen to Channel 1 or Channel 2, 9 o'clock news, that's it. Mm. 
Now it's, it's the opposite. Because of the social media, all these new technologies, communications, they do it you know, with abundance of information. There's so much information that people, you know, they, they can't swallow it. They can't not di- digest it. And instinctively, they try to restrict the sources going to one or two trusted, you know, yeah. medias. Which means that, you know, they, they simply ignore everything else. And that's, that's the point. You know, if you can establish some kind of a bond with, with, with a listener, with a TV viewer, so, or newspaper mm-hmm. reader, that's it. And, you know... Uh, so people give up, in effect, asking what's true or what's not exactly. true. People and, begin to think truth is unknowable. I'm absolutely. just not going to even bother. I'll just I'll pick and choose the truth that I want. No, because, no, no, because, you know, there's only one way to tell the truth. And there are a hundred different ways to lie. Just to tell you, once, you know, just to give you an idea how Russian propaganda works, you know, the, the, tra- the tragedy with, um, with Malaysian Boeing that was shot by a Russian yes. missile. The only question there, whether, you know, the guys, you know, Russian, Russian crew that, you know, shot it down, they had a direct order from Kremlin or they made a mistake. But, of course, Russian propaganda tried to sort of to cloud this issue by coming up with different versions. And in the very same day, two different channels of Putin's, you know, TV, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Putin's propaganda machine, they had two opposite versions. One insisted that Ukrainian missile hit the plane, right. another one that Ukrainian jet fighter. Almost at the same time in two different channels. And, again, they didn't care because the whole idea is to deviate from truce. And then everything else doesn't matter. You know, it, it confuses people. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I, I really, the more I thought about uh, your, your tweet, it occurs to me that you have to have lived someplace like the Soviet Union or in an authoritarian regime to fully grasp some of the things that we are seeing. Uh, Americans, I think, are somewhat naive. We, we just sort of have a, have a certain sunny, optimistic view. And by the way, we're going to uh, open up the phone lines uh, to the callers as well. We want to hear from listeners who may have lived under authoritarian regimes. Do you, do you agree with this thesis? Um, are you seeing things that are happening now that that might remind you of things? Do you have a different insight than Americans might have? Our phone number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Now, Mr. Kasparov, you wrote during the election campaign last year that especially right after the Republican convention, that, you know, there were people who were you know, comparing Donald Trump to this figure and that figure, and you said, no, he reminded you very much of Vladimir Putin. How? Uh, look, now we could see, you know, that's exactly as Putin, you know. Trump immediately attacked media, independent media. Okay, he didn't have the same opportunities as Putin to shut down, you know, the, the newspaper or radio stations or TV stations. And also he attacked independent judiciary. That's, again, those are unmistakable signs of to be dictator. Again, I don't think Trump is going to succeed because American democracy is much uh, uh, more resilient, is, is, it has a strong foundation. But again, it's very important that Trump now you know, demonstrates uh, to American public that nothing is for granted. For many years, you know, I had the same response. Okay, it's your problem in Russia or in China or right. elsewhere. Here in America, it's all for granted. You know, we, do, we don't have these problems and we'll never have them. Okay, thanks to Trump, if I can say, that he, you know, he helps America to to uh, awake, to actually realize that, you know, freedom, as Ronald Reagan said, is always one generation away from extinction. Now, you're a Ronald Reagan fan. You supported Ronald Reagan. You supported uh, John McCain. Uh, look, you, you know, it's, just, it's not as simple. I supported Ronald Reagan because, as many of my competitors, I believe that, you know, he was instrumental in dismantling the Soviet Union. But if you read my book, you know, I was, I was praising Harry Truman, mm-hmm. JFK. For me, you know, what was most important thing about a 
the, the Cold War strategy is that it was bipartisan. There was a bipartisan consensus by both by Democrats and Republicans about existential threat posed by the Soviet Union and necessity for America to lead the free world and to protect the values. I, I found your, your your contrast between Reagan and Trump to be very, very interesting. That when, when Ronald Reagan was, was running for president, uh, the, there were a lot of problems in the country, and yet Ronald Reagan was um, very optimistic. He was upbeat. He presented a vision of what he could do for the country, whereas in contrast, Trump created this sort of dystopian view. And, and let me just read you uh, something that, that, that you said, and I wanted you to, to talk about it a little bit. That you know, you might think that a politician would want to evoke positive emotions, but what the demagogic candidate does, he paints this bleak picture, and he says that if you don't elect me, it will get worse. And this is what you wrote. The Democratic leader needs people. The tyrant and the would-be tyrant insist the people need him. I thought that was fascinating. Absolutely. It's a, um, it, it's a must for uh, a would-be dictator to convince people that he is the only way for them to be saved, to be protected. Uh, that's what Putin did. That's what other dictators in the past did. But, you know, creating imaginable threats by telling people that they are, you know, they are in grave danger unless they give all power to, to this man. And, you know, the moment he concentrates his powers, you know, he, you know, he does as he wishes. Okay. Now, we know, we know what Vladimir Putin has done. But are, are you seriously suggesting that Donald Trump wants to be a dictator, that he wants to be a tyrant? It doesn't, it, it, people will, will hear this and go, that's, that's overstating the case. No, it, first of all, you know, you'd better overstate it now. This is, you know, it's, I always say, you know, you should protest, you know, to defend your rights because, you know, later you can say, OK, I overreacted. But it's better than, uh, you know, not reacting at all and, uh, and waking up, you know, when it's, when, when it's too late. Uh, I, want to, I have to, you know, emphasize, I think, U.S., uh, democracy is too strong for Trump to uh, overrule it. But again, we could see how he tried to undermine institutions like free media and judiciary. So it seems that, you know, he's failing. And I think that's the the mainstream of, of GOP. You know, they will they will keep him under check. Well, I want to, I want to play for you something because this this whole question and there's a lot of you know mysteries about the the first month of the presidency is you know continues to be this relationship between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and I'm sure you've heard this soundbite but I want to get your reaction. This is uh, Donald Trump talking with Bill O'Reilly when he was pressing him about why he respected Vladimir Putin. Do you respect Putin? I do respect him. Do you? Why? I, well, I respect a lot of people, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get along with him. He's a leader of his country. Uh, I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. And if Russia helps us in the fight against ISIS, which is a major fight, and Islamic terrorism all over the world, right. major fight, that's a good thing. Will I get along with him? I have no idea. He's a killer, I though. Won't. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We've got a lot of killers. Well, you think our country's so innocent? You think our country's so innocent? I don't know of any government leaders that are killers in America. Well, take a look at what we've done, too. We've made a lot of mistakes. I've been against the war in Iraq from the beginning. Yeah, mistakes are different then. A lot of mistakes, okay, but a lot of people were killed. So a lot of right. killers around, believe me. Gary Kasparov, what were your thoughts when you heard the president of the United States say that? Putin couldn't wish, you know, sort of better words coming out of Trump's mouth. The president of the United States basically supported the main element of Russian propaganda. Actually, it was a Soviet propaganda. It's, it's a propaganda uh, um, term used by every dictator uh, uh, um, in the world saying that everything is relative. 
Yes, maybe we do bad things. Everybody else does. And of course, America is, is committing crimes. And now they will simply be playing this, the, uh, 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 these words coming from the president of the United States, uh, which, you know, confirmed uh, the... Uh, the, the, the concept that uh, there, there are no rules to, to, to obey. Democracy is just, you know, is a cover up. Uh, and uh, uh, Putin could be triumphant because, you know, Trump basically, you know, exonerated him from all the crimes that he committed and he's still committing. You know, Donald Trump has not been really consistent about anything except this one thing. He continually praises Vladimir Putin. What is going on? What, what do you think is behind this? What is the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. No, I think maybe there is a kind of a psychological bond because Trump always, you know, expressed his admiration for strong leaders, uh, for strong men, for dictators. We remember that, you know, a long time ago, he, um, uh, he was praising uh, Tiananmen Massacre uh, conducted by Chinese communists in 1989. And of course, you know, he looked at Putin as a strong leader, you know, and maybe envied him. But that's, you know, that's psychology. Uh, maybe is this something more sinister? Because we know that uh, in 2008, 2009, when Trump uh, real estate empire was in trouble, he received a massive investment from the foreign countries. And Russia was one of them. And according to his son, you know, who was bragging that uh, Russian investment was disproportionate compared to, uh, to others. And then the stories, again, we cannot prove them, but the stories about Trump's visit to Moscow in 2013, we don't know exactly what kind of relations, you know, uh, or what kind of business uh, um, transactions uh, um, happened between Putin oligarchs and Trump. But what we know that Vladimir Putin believed for some reasons that Trump would be an ideal counterpart to assist Putin in his clandestine geopolitical agenda. Now, you, you testified before the United States Senate last week. Do you, do you have a sense, do you think the Republicans in Congress will in fact investigate this? Or will they just go through the motions? Uh, I think they will have no choice. But right now, the problem the Republicans are facing that, you know, you mentioned the Trump numbers. They're not good. But it's, you know, 85, 86, 87 percent support among Republicans, which means that many of these, uh, uh, many of these Republicans, especially in the House, they, they're afraid, they're, they're freaking out of, of being challenged at the primaries. Yeah, no. So it's, it's, it's a political game, but it seems to me that with more information coming out about Michael Flynn, his relations with, with Russians, and some other members of Trump's entourage and, and campaign, uh, their contacts with, with Russian oligarchs, are maybe, maybe with Russian intelligence officers, I think that you know, sooner or later, maybe rather sooner, uh, we'll see you know, bipartisan investigation. And again, I hope that Trump will realize that he has to actually push for it to clear out his name. Otherwise, you know, it will blow up one day. Yeah, okay. let's go, let's go uh, to uh, the, the phones. Uh, give us a call at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm testing my, just my, my, my sense, uh, reading and listening to Gary Kasparov, that, that you know, per- perhaps the people who've actually lived under authoritarian regimes are the ones who are best uh, able to analyze and get a sense of what's actually happening to us. Uh, let's go to the phones. Let's go to uh, Jackie from West Hartford, Connecticut. Good evening, Jackie. You're on Indivisible. Hi. Uh, first, I want to say thanks for the show. It's great. And um, Gary, keep doing what you're doing. Thank um, you. I wanted to just share with the audience that um, I grew up in Iran and um Growing up in an authoritarian country, there's a lot of things that, for me, what's happening now make me a little nervous. 
One is the belief that any change is good. I remember my great-grandfather, who actually was in Russia during the revolution, um, told us, people always think change means it's going to be good. They never think that change could turn out bad. And right now, I think people are so looking for something different. They're so sick of the Republicans and the Democrats that they're holding on to anything Trump says, hoping that, you know what, if we just blow up the current system, it's going to get better. Well, I want people to think, what if it gets worse? What are you going to do if it gets worse? That's one thing. The second thing is that growing up in Iran and growing up with an attitude in the family that you have two persons, you basically do code switch. You have one conversation with your family, one conversation with everyone else. And you have to be careful about what you say because a cannon will be used against you, even in the schoolyard. Jackie, That's the stuff that I'm getting worried about here. Gary, you're, you're, people, you're, you're, nodding your, you're nodding your head. This ab- sounds familiar. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it sounds where, familiar. You know, people yeah. like the, with, what Trump is doing is he's starting to segregate us. He's starting to make it about us versus them, and that them could be our neighbor. And that's the stuff that's making me nervous. I'm a moderate. I vote Republican. I vote Democrat. But these are all the things that are making me nervous, is the us versus them. The idea that change only can mean good. And we're not looking Jackie, for right, Jackie, not thanks for the be- call. No, you know, and also you have to have an, an enemy, right? You have to have somebody to blame. Exactly, you know, and that's why, you know, Trump did something, you know, uh, very, you may call it unconventional and unheard. He, you know, he had a rally just, you know, yeah. just a month into presidency and he already mm-hmm. needed a rally to sort of to enthuse his, um, his base. Yeah. But he's not the president of his base. He's the president of the United States. He has totally different, you know, uh, obligations and duties. And, you know, uh, at his acceptance speech, you know, uh, he said, oh, I would be president for, for all Americans. So far, you know, we don't see signs of him trying sort of to uh, uh, run the country as a president for all Americans. And, uh, you know, it, of course, creates rifts, you know, it, 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 it widens the gap. That's why, you know, we have... Uh, uh, unheard numbers, you know, um, between Republicans and Democrats with so many Republicans supporting Trump. I think his numbers w- within GOP support mm-hmm. even higher than Ronald Reagan. Yes. But with, with, with Democrats and in, sing- in single digits. So um, I think it's, just, it's Jackie made a very good point about, you know, not every change is for good. Right. You know, so that's why we should realize that things that we believe in just they're making progress. They may, you know, they may actually turn around. All right, we're going to continue this. You are listening to Indivisible, which is public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Charlie Sykes, and my guest, a very special guest, Gary Kasparov, chess champion, Human Rights Foundation chairman, author of Winter is Coming, Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of the Free World Must Be Stopped. We'll hear more from him and get to your calls after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible.
Hello, Indivisible listeners. I'm Bob Garfield, co-host of On the Media. We at OTM are working on a project about what people think of public media. We especially want to hear from conservative listeners. Do you rely on your local public radio station? Do you think federal funding should go towards public media or not? Record a voice memo and email it to onthemedia at wnyc.org. Tell us your name and where you're calling from. Many thanks. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. This is Charlie Sykes broadcasting from WNYC in New York. We are talking with Gary Kasparov. Um, we're taking calls from people who've lived under authoritarian regimes about their experiences, whether they are seeing things that maybe Americans don't see. You know, and during the break, uh, Gary, you, you mentioned something very interesting about uh, what a blow certain events were in the last week for uh, Vladimir Putin. And you, you made the point it wasn't just that that uh, Michael Flynn was fired. What what was uh, what were you referring to? No, it's it's what's happened in in, in the courtroom. Hmm. You know, the president of the United States, the man who is seen by the rest of the world as the most powerful individual on the planet, he had an executive order. You know, mm-hmm. in, for Putin, you know, that's it. You know, that's the end of the story for every dictator. So that's, you know, the yeah. executive order. Right. It tells people what to do. But this order was challenged in the court. President of the United States loses in the court. And then instead of, you know, imprisoning the judge, he goes to the appeal court and loses again. That had a tremendous effect. I, I was following Russian really? propaganda. No, they were speechless because I had to explain how come. Because it shows that democracy in the United States is a living institution. You know, it, it, it's functioning. It's not president who decides everything and for everyone. It's about people. We the people. And there is, the separation of powers is not just, you know, uh, a piece of paper. It, it, it works. And it sends a signal to people in Russia and elsewhere that, you know, it's democracy can actually confer the powers of, of the executive office. And, and it, it made Trump look weak. No, yeah, but it's, it, that's another story. Okay. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, I, you know, I, I, I uh, read, you know, the Soviet propaganda. They were confused by Watergate. Mm-hmm. Then later, just, you know, I saw reports that Brezhnev and his Politburo, they thought that probably it was a Nixon trick, you know, to avoid signing some documents because they couldn't believe that the Congress of the United States could impeach the president. So it's the same disbelief in Putin's eyes. How on earth, you know, you have the, you know, all powers in your hands and you have to go to the court, independent judiciary. But again, it it emphasizes the importance of democracy. And that's why I say we have to praise Trump for helping Americans to realize how important is democracy, how important is separation of powers. People are reading U.S. Constitution, American laws, and by defending it, by defending there freedom. There could be some renewal. Exactly. They're sending a message back to oppressed people in Russia, China, elsewhere that, you know, democracy is vital for, for a normally functioning country. Let's go back to the phones. We have a call from, uh, I'm told, a call from Pakistan. Timothy from Pakistan, you're on the air. Good evening. How are you? I am doing well. Well, does does this sound familiar to you? Uh, you know, our, the, the the question is whether or not people who have seen authoritarian regimes are seeing something and perhaps seeing it differently than a lot of Americans uh, are, are seeing it. Yes, yes, very much. Uh, big big issue is free speech. You know, uh, there is an elite that. Uh, they control all the media, so you can't you can't talk about them. And they 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 abuse children. John Podesta is one of them. 
Pizzagate is real. Okay, well, we're going to not go there because Pizzagate is not real. Pizzagate is was a complete and a total hoax. This is, by the way, so, this, is, this is a classical case of abuse of the free speech. Yeah, that, that would be an abuse of free speech. <laughs> yes, you're entitled to your opinions. You're not entitled to your facts. And to be, the, but this is one of those those things where you throw out these things and we go to the annihilation of truth. That that you know, yes, what it's, it's not enough to say I disagree with John Podesta or I disagree with with the Democrats. You have to create these. These these stories uh, again. It's it's easy because they have so many channels. It's not you know old classical debate when you have you know a couple of newspapers, TV stations, radio. Now we have thousands of different channels by using the social media, and you can you know use these channels to send your story here and there. And some people will pick it up. And if you keep repeating it, right. you know. It's it works, you know, and Putin, we have to give him credit. You know, he's a KGB guy, you know, very smart. He built, you know, global fake news industry. He started in Russia by undermining Russian opposition. And then he realized that he could do it elsewhere. He had plenty of cash and a lot of people that would like, you know, just to play the ball. Let's go to uh, let's go to Sophia from Union County, New Jersey, who also immigrated to the United States from the Soviet uh, Union. Uh, Good evening, Sophia. Welcome to Indivisible. Good evening. Thank you very much for giving me a chance, uh, giving me a voice. Um, yes, I wanted to share my, my uh, impression of uh, Trump from the moment that he was um, actually nominated. I thought he was working from a textbook for future dictators, checking off all the items on the list. Uh, create a problem that didn't exist. Immigration is not a problem in the U.S. Uh, we weren't under any particular terrorist threat any more than we were eight years prior. Uh, create, find, check that um, off the list. Uh, created a problem. Try to blame, find people to blame. Uh, it's not Jews in this time. It, it was Muslims. Check. Uh, that off, discredit media, check. Uh, don't worry about the truth. It doesn't matter because if you repeat it three times, uh, it becomes truth and people have to defend themselves against it anyway. Uh, check that off the list, too. And, of course, um, Putin is just a kindred spirit, so um, not, not surprised they are friends. But it was um, very scary and very clear that he was headed for victory just because these tactics worked before and they have worked for him. Hopefully, he woke us up and we can become we the people again um, and uh, return to our democracy and not not give away our rights. Sophia, Uh, thanks for the call. I appreciate it very much. You you know, you you, you talk about um, how to deal with, with Donald Trump, and maybe I was getting to this a little bit earlier. You said, you know, making him look like a loser is crucial because, you know, either the demagogue, you know, I mean, if, if a demagogue succeeds in claiming credit for wins and scapegoating his enemies, he loses and he's very, very hard to stop. And you can already see this sort of the, the, the pattern that anything good that happens, he will claim credit for. Anything bad that happens, he will blame. You fill, 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 fill. The long fill, list, endless list. So, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about uh, Putin's Russia. And, because he, he will, of course, promise that he can solve all of these problems and he will identify the problems. But... Um, really, the the actual effectiveness in so- solving the problem doesn't seem to be determinative, determinative of whether or not he, he is he is popular and powerful. Uh, 
Yeah, but first, you know, let's um, let's uh, agree that you know this is still a, it's 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 a huge difference. Huge, Putin is yes. illegitimate. You know, right. uh, he uh, bent Russian constitution. He runs a time, and he for seventeen years, if, if we count four more years with his puppet Medvedev being on top, he was you know he's he's Russian ruler. Trump is a legitimate president. He was elected, you know, minority votes, but according to 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 the to the rules, to the laws, to U.S. constitution. Yes, yes, yeah. But um, you know. Uh, it's very important for an authoritarian leader, you know, and Trump definitely, you know, it's, you know it, he has these tendencies in him. So to um, uh, um, shield himself from any mistakes, that's why he must look like a winner. I think that one of the reasons he refused to open his taxes, because probably most likely he's not as rich as he claims. We don't know whether he's a billionaire or not. I suspect not. And that's why it will be kind of a devastating blow to him because people will say, wait, 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 but he's not, you know, he's not as big as he pretended to be. So for Trump, you know, to look invincible, to look someone who is just beyond criticism is very important. And he's quite thin-skinned, you know, that's why he always goes after free press. Putin doesn't have to do it because he has, you know, many layers of protection, you know, just Mm -hmm. he has propaganda machine. He doesn't have, you know, independent radio or television to go after him in Russia. But we could see, you know, again, as as, uh, uh, Sophia just said, you know, Putin and Trump kindred spirits. So Trump operates in a democracy, but you see these troubling signs of someone who just, you know, who would prefer, strongly prefer to operate like Putin? Well, let me just go back to this uh, this whole question of who who is Vladimir Putin and the and the moral equivalency that uh, that uh, that President Trump was was pushing. I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before. There's a, a congressman, uh, Steve King, who was asked about uh, Trump's uh, r- remarks, and he brought you up and he said, "Look, uh, you know how how bad can Trump be?" He would say, "What you know, suppressing dissent." Uh, he said, I, "I would say." Gary Kasparov uh, has long, and now he's in the United States, he has lived a long time in Russia with a very loud megaphone of dissent against the administration, and he's still alive. And, well, so you have American congressmen saying, well, how bad can Vladimir Putin be if you are still alive? I live with only his conscience, you know. It's the, uh, I uh, lost quite a few friends, one of the most known of them is uh, my late friend and colleague and ally Boris Nemtsov, the former deputy mm-hmm. prime minister under Yeltsin, the man who stayed in Russia actually advised me to leave on the, in 2013 when I faced an imminent arrest. And he stayed in Russia and he was murdered, you know, executed, I would even say, in front of Kremlin mm-hmm. uh, uh, in 2015. There will be two years uh, uh, by the end of this month that will remember you know, this, this assassination. Uh, and uh, uh, most of people who marched with me for, uh, uh, um, uh, um, against Putin, all the peaceful rallies, so they're either in exile, in jail, or even worse. Uh, so that's why for United States congressmen to suggest that the fact is that Gary Kasparov, actually you know, the most or one of the most decorated Soviet athletes, mm-hmm. Soviet and Russian mm-hmm. athletes, had to leave his country and was to live in exile. And, you know, that tells you that Putin is not so bad that he wouldn't go after me here in New York. I mean, just it tells you how little people understand and how the partisanship, you know, can cloud their judgment. Because at the end of the day, Putin is a dictator. He's a brutal dictator who, you know, um, invaded a neighboring country, first time since 1945, who repeated many of the claims that came directly from Nazi propaganda about, you know, the uh, uh, Russian imperial uh, dominance and, 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 and rights to control territories where Russian people live. And, uh, and uh, now carpet-bombed Aleppo, mm-hmm. supported the most brutal dictators in the world. And just to look for an excuse because Putin said something nice about Trump or even worse, because Putin wanted Trump to win, 
uh, and, you know, did absolutely everything in his power to undermine Trump's opponent throughout the election process. So I have to ask you this. So are you at all afraid? Are you nervous? You have American congressmen saying, well, here's a sign of, you know, the Vladimir Putin not so bad because Gary Kasparov is. Do, do you have concerns about uh, this? Did you watch this it's a movie, Bridge of Spies? Mm-hmm. You know, what, remember what, you know, being asked the same question many times, uh, what Colonel Abel responded, would it help? Yeah, of course, I do have to worry, you know, watching Putin, you know, just going unbound. But at the same time, you know, I have to do what I've been doing for all my life, you know, and I, I live in New York. I travel around the world, of course, you know, not uh, visiting some of the countries where, you know, mm-hmm. safety is not guaranteed. Um, but, you know, um, it's always it's, in your mind. It's it's a little bit yeah it it's a very painful question you know I have yeah. my wife my kids here so it's you know we are facing this threat and uh, you know hearing from some of the Trump supporters you know that you know that good things about Putin or other dictators you know it's it really you know makes me feel you know concerned about you know the the future of democracy here because they. they these people just don't understand you know uh, how valuable is 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 the climate, democratic climate, that, by the way, gives them an opportunity to present their views freely. And it's, it is serious. I and mean, the rest of the world is watching us. You know, you, you actually uh, said, said something at one point that, you know, Reagan, coming back to Reagan, you know, his vision of, of the shining city on a hill that may have seemed corny to a lot of Americans, but it meant a lot to guys like you, Absolutely. refugees and immigrants. Exactly. You know, that's, 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 we looked at America, you know, as, as a beacon of freedom. So, and, and when, you know, just, I, I was, you know, uh, terrified by some Republicans comparing Trump to Reagan. Yeah. I mean, Reagan, you know, was at the end of the day, you know, just, just signed, you know, one of the biggest a- amnesty for immigrants in this country. And he did many things that, you know, were, you know, to boost Americans' image. He talked to people in the world. Again, you may agree or disagree with him, but he had a positive vision of America's role in the world. Trump is exactly the opposite. I, I want to get to another call, but I have to ask you this question. How does being a chess grandmaster prepare you to deal with politics? Is, is, it, is, is, do, do, is it a way of thinking about things? Is it helpful? What, what is the connection? There's no direct connection. You know, I'm used to uh, analyze facts when I have you know, them at my disposal. Uh, I'm trying to strategize, again, as much as I can, recognizing that chess is not as complicated as life, but obviously my experience to view the big picture to understand that the move on one side of the board could have a decisive effect on the other side of the board helps me to make certain predictions and forecasts. And find weak spots. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Uh, Jenny from Minneapolis, you're on Indivisible. Thank you so much for taking my call. And I'm, I'm so grateful for this. I've been trying to call. But anyway, um, as the person that took my call asked me if I've been on an authoritarian rule. And I said yes, because I grew up in a country that was very peaceful, and we had a brutal civil war, and people want to change. Which country was it? Liberia. So people want to change. In 1989, we had a brutal civil war that started from the rural area and then moved up to the city. But prior to that, our president at the time, Samuel Dole, was a president that hated the media, and he prosecuted and he killed and he jailed some of them. And I'm not saying that's happening now, but it starts with silencing the media because the media holds uh, power to or truth, hold, um, power to truth. 
Um, so when that started happening, and then when the Civil War came, people were so happy for the change that we wanted, and that change ended up devastating the whole entire country today. And that's the reason why a lot of us are fleeing, have fled the country, and are all around the world. Jenny, thanks, thanks, thanks for the call. You know, this, 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 this attack on the media, and there are a lot of us who have been critical of the media, but there is also, and it goes back to that original tweet that, uh, that, that I read, the, the process of delegitimizing, discrediting all independent sources of, of information, this, this is really a challenge to a democratic society, isn't it? Absolutely, and uh, uh, using the term enemy of the people, the term coined first by Vladimir Lenin, just staying in power for one month, you know, after Bolsheviks take over 1917, he came up with this concept. It's not just, you know, the, our opponent or our, our enemy, our enemy of a political party, enemy of the people. And that's since, since 1917, it became, you know, sort of a very useful tool for all dictators. I don't know if Trump came up with this term on his own or recommended by Steve Bannon, who, as we know, is a big fan of Vladimir Lenin and also, you know, wants to overthrow the political system and just to build something new. Who has described himself rulers. as a Leninist. Exactly, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it definitely, you know, builds a bridge between dictators of the past, their vocabulary and their methods and the way Trump is trying to sort of to portray the opposition to his rule in this country. Again, it's still a democracy, but we see that he's looking for weak spots. Well, you, and you also point out that maybe this is, point out this is an opportunity to wake up Americans, to understand, okay, this is what we have, this is what's valuable, this is what's distinctive, and this is what uh, may be at risk. You know, it's more than just, you know, just defending freedom in America because I think what's happening now, it's you're sending a message across the world. It's this, you show the value value of democracy. And it's it's an irony. It You know, when I grew up in the Soviet Union, we, we were waiting for the message from the White House, from the Oval Office. Right now, it's, it's the opposite. It's American people, actually, who are demonstrating their adherence to democratic values and they demonstrate how democracy can protect them even against, you know, uh, author- potentially authoritarian rule. Uh, thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Gary Kasparov, former chess champion, Human Rights Foundation chairman. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, we'll be back with more Indivisible right after this break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Charlie Sykes from WNYC Radio. We're going to uh, change topics a little bit. We have a very, very special guest. I've been uh, waiting for weeks to get Jeffrey Rosen on. He is the president and the chief executive officer of the National Constitution Center, which is the only institution in the United States chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. He's a professor at the George Washington University Law School. He's a fellow with the Brookings Institution, contributing editor for The Atlantic. 
A reviewer for the Los Angeles Times called him the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator. Thanks so much for joining me uh, tonight, Jeffrey. Thank you so much, and the show is great. I'm so thrilled to be on. Well, well, thank you. Well, I want to ask you, since this is a President's um, Week, uh, we've been talking a lot about presidents. Uh, interestingly enough, Donald Trump has decided that the president that he'd like to be compared to is Andrew Jackson. And you had a very interesting piece in The Atlantic that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, there were some people who thought that maybe there was an historical precedent when Donald Trump uh, attacked uh, attacked uh, federal judges, the so-called judges, that perhaps the precedent was when his hero Andrew Jackson had criticized Chief Justice John Marshall's decision in a case involving the Cherokee Indians. And allegedly he said, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. So I guess the question is, um, is, is, is in fact, uh, was Donald Trump challenging his inner Andrew Jackson by lashing out of the judiciary? Uh, he was not. Uh, he went further than Andrew Jackson ever did. And as you suggest, Jackson is the president who's most famous for having threatened to disregard a Supreme Court decision that he disagreed with. But as it turned out, Jackson didn't disregard the decision. He diffused the situation by persuading the governor of Georgia to pardon these missionaries who were uh, being held in, in Georgia. So uh, the Supreme Court didn't have to be defied. And at the end of his life, Jackson actually praised Marshall for being a great statesman of his age and a true patriot. Uh, yeah. The difference between Trump and Jackson is Jackson was a, a judge. He was a former judge on the Tennessee courts. He had a strong constitutional vision. His clash with John Marshall, which extended not only to the Cherokee Indians case, but also to this totemic clash about the constitutionality of the Second Bank of the United States was all fought on constitutional grounds. And the attacks, although in private they were sometimes colorful, were never starkly personal and public. He didn't question the legitimacy of John Marshall. He didn't call other judges so-called judges. So that's why I do think that the current personal attacks on judicial independence represent a new threshold. Yeah, and, and, and is quite literally unprecedented? Well, I, I, you, you know, you want to be careful in yeah. <laughs> uh, using that term because the, the attacks on the judiciary have been really strong. And then Jackson's in private were strong. Thomas Jefferson maybe is the next closest analog because he hated John Marshall. They were distant mm -hmm. cousins, and they had all these great insults for each other. Uh, Je Jefferson called Marshall a sophist, and then Marshall called Jefferson the great llama of the mountain. And Jefferson's writing all these really nasty things about <laughs> Marshall in his private letters, calling the judiciary a troop of sappers and miners. But it's in private, and to the degree that Obviously, Jefferson and Marshall couldn't tweet, and the framers would have been appalled at the idea of tweeting politicians because they thought the president and representatives should never communicate directly with their constituents. But to, to the degree that we are finding a president directly attacking judges through social media, I think it's fair to call that unprecedented. Yeah, I want to actually throw out the question to the audience here. Um, you know, since we are talking about pre President's Day this week and the first hundred days, it, if Donald Trump thinks that he's like Andrew Jackson, who do you actually think that he's the most like? Is there any other president that you think is is like Donald Trump? Who would you want to compare him to? Um, I also wanted to ask you uh, about this. Uh, you, um, the Within the first month, of course, you have this uh, constitutional clash between the president uh, and the federal judiciary over the travel ban. Uh, and now um, the Justice Department is saying that they were going to withdraw the travel ban, the 
Trump White House sends out one of its uh, its aides, Stephen Miller, to suggest that, well, it's not going to be that much different. I'm sure you've heard this sound, but I just want to play. I just want to play what Stephen Miller had to say about the possibility of sort of tweaking the ter- travel ban just a little bit to get around the federal court ruling. Grant Burchette is 18 years old, but he wants to know specifically how the second order is going to be different. Well, one of the big differences that you're going to see in the executive order is that it's going to be responsive to the judicial ruling, which didn't exist previously. And so those are mostly minor minor technical differences. Fundamentally, you're still going to have the same basic policy outcome for the country, but you're going to be responsive to a lot of very technical issues that were brought up by the court, and those will be addressed. But in terms of protecting the country, those, those basic policies are still going to be in effect. So Jeff, Jeffrey Rosen, uh, your your reaction? You now have you know top White House aide basically saying, yeah, this uh, this new travel ban we're going to put out is pretty much basically the same thing with just minor technical differences. Do you think that that's going to cut it with uh, the federal judges? Uh, we definitely want to see the text because the devil is in the details in every sense. But if if we imagine that the new ban. Uh, is like the old, but doesn't contain the explicit religious-based classifications that seem to uh, prefer Christian over Muslim refugees. And also, if it explicitly excludes green card holders, that'll cure two of the defects that the Ninth Circuit appellate court judges objected to. However, there's a really interesting question about whether the president's extrajudicial statements and those of Mayor Giuliani will still be relevant in infecting this new formally neutral ban. There are some Supreme Court cases that the judges cited that said that you can look beyond the four corners of the statute to try to infer the actual motive behind it. And given the extensive evidence that the ban was intended to prefer Christian over Muslim refugees uh, and therefore may have been infected with unconstitutional animus, some judges will be inclined to infer that animus from beyond the record. Others may be persuaded by these fixes and be inclined to uphold it. There's no doubt that these are the most dramatic defects of the original ban, and a Boston judge had already upheld that one. So uh, let, let's wait till we actually see the text, but I would imagine there'll be lots of litigation, and I wouldn't be surprised if judges disagreed about the constitutionality of the new ban. And if there's a disagreement between the circuit courts, then that will tee things up for Supreme Court review, and it's not inconceivable that the Supreme Court could hear it. And, of course, judges are not automatons. Uh, they're, they're not machines. They're watching the same thing that we're all watching. They're listening to the same sorts of things. Um, they are people, and they are watching this this very unusual um, uh, you know, attack, these you know, multiple attacks on the legitimacy of the federal judiciary. Do you think that there's a possibility that the judges, and I'm asking you to speculate in some sense, you know, are, are, are seeing this as, as a chance to reassert the fact that under our constitutional system there are three co-equal branches of government and, and, and that, that that sort of larger issue is going to influence these, these more particular decisions? I do think so. I think that the attacks on judicial independence will backfire to the degree that there were judges that were on the fence about whether or not to defer to the president. Uh, some will be alarmed at the idea that anyone who disagrees with the president uh, has his or her motives attacked. And more broadly, progressives as well as conservatives are rediscovering the centrality of Madisonian checks on the executive. I find that fascinating, uh, so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such an interesting trend. It's, you, you, we, we have to 
acknowledge that under President Obama, lots of progressives defended his executive orders over immigration, and conservatives said they were unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court divided. But now progressives are also understanding the dangers of the imperial presidency, which dates back to Theodore Roosevelt, who said the president can do anything the Constitution doesn't explicitly forbid. Now that the president is challenging boundaries, lots of progressives and conservatives want to reign in the imperial presidency. Yeah. So I think I can imagine both progressive judges getting their backs up, but some principled conservative and libertarian judges also thinking, hey, the framer system has to be maintained. We cannot have an out-of-control presidency. I wouldn't even be surprised if uh, Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court nominee, if he's confirmed. Yeah, he, he has a strong record of enforcing Jeffersonian limits on Congress. Uh, I don't know. He's had, he's had a lot of executive power cases, but, but he, he conceives of himself as someone who would absolutely enforce limits on an out-of-control federal government. And I, I could well imagine a clash between him and the president. I think he, in some of his meetings with the senators, has been citing the Korematsu case, where Robert Jackson, who Franklin Roosevelt mm -hmm. appointed, ruled against Roosevelt in objecting to the Japanese internment, one of the most infamous examples of executive overreach in the 20th century. So I, I absolutely could see uh, Gorsuch and the other conservative justices, too, joining the liberals in checking President Trump if they felt the Constitution required it. Well, I think this is interesting because, you know, we, 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 we tend to try to put people into boxes of, you know, liberal judges and conservative judges, but they come in different breeds. And, and I do think that the, uh, the president's choice of Neil Gorsuch is so interesting because Neil Gorsuch strikes me as one of the judges most likely to be skeptical about uh, excessive executive power, as, as you pointed out. And I'm, I'm uh, I'm not sure maybe that the president fully understood what he was doing. Let's uh, go to go to the phones uh, on on this question of uh, which which president uh, uh, you would would want to compare Trump to. Uh, David from Kansas City, Kansas, you are an indivisible. Good evening. Hi. Hey, I I understand there's a case Mulberry versus Madison, when which Jefferson vehemently um, had a problem with John Marshall. And said that no, the judicial was not to be um, was to be more of a weaker branch. That they that John Marshall. Um, well, okay, Je Jeffrey Rosen, we we we, we have the na we have one of the nation's foremost uh, experts on this. Marbury versus Madison being the seminal case on this issue of judicial review. Yes, and the caller is absolutely right that Marshall and Jefferson were clashing then, and Marshall was afraid that if he ordered Jefferson to turn over a commission to a judge that hadn't been delivered by the previous administration, Jefferson would ignore his order. So Marshall did something. He committed an act of judicial jujitsu. It was a real uh, act of statesmanship. And he said, yes, of course, in theory, the court has the power to order that the commission be turned over, but the law authorizing us to do that is itself unconstitutional. So it was brilliant because he avoids a direct conflict with Jefferson in the short term, but shores up the court's power in the long term. And Jefferson grudgingly complies because he's not actually ordered to do anything. And although he ends his life seething at Marshall's overreach and even questions the power of judicial review itself, 
in that case, he has nothing to object to. So it was a really brilliant example of judicial statesmanship. You know, I'm really struck by the fact that uh, you are saying something very, very similar to what our previous guest, uh, Gary Kasparov, was saying, that, that we live in times where we have an opportunity to go back to first principles. The people are asking these questions, you know, tell us more about this whole checks and balances thing. Let's talk now about what the U.S. Constitution, how, how it restrains the power of government. Um, are, are you just sensing, and I think you, you, you addressed this before, um, that this is a teachable moment for uh, someone like yourself at the National Constitution Center, because now I am sensing people asking these questions and talking about the Bill of Rights, talking about checks and balances, and going back to these questions of, you know, where do you draw the lines in a way that I haven't heard in decades. People are so hungry for constitutional education. They understand the urgency of educating themselves about obscure clauses that even law professors like me hadn't really thought about, like the Foreign Emoluments Clause or, or, or the details of the Tenth Amendment. So what I want listeners to do is educate yourselves. And I've got to put in a plug for the incredible interactive constitution that the Constitution Center has launched. It's gotten 10 million hits since it launched a year ago. And in the past few months, right before and after the election, the hits have just skyrocketed. It's constitutioncenter.org or in the App Store, Interactive Constitution. We have the leading liberal and conservative scholars in the country writing about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. So when you go to the Foreign Emoluments Clause, you can see disagreement about whether it applies to the president, but agreement that it has applied ever since Andrew Jackson. So the Constitution is a conversation among people of different points of view, as Justice Holmes said, and it's really exciting to see how much agreement there is among the liberal and conservative scholars and also what the flashpoints are for disagreement. But my main takeaway is these are hard questions. They're open. Judges are going to disagree. Citizens now have an opportunity and really a responsibility to dig in deep, read for yourself, and make up your own minds. Has there been a pendulum um, over over the various presidencies where we have you know, swung towards an embrace of the imperial presidency and then swinging back toward more and more skepticism? I mean, you know, I've gone back and, and, and read some of the things that Woodrow Wilson and, T- and Teddy Roosevelt said that would be shocking, I think, to, to modern sensibilities about the power of the president. And of course, you know, we, the, the phrase imperial president came up under Richard Nixon. Are, are we going to see that pendulum swing back? Do you, you, uh, do, are there ebbs and flows in constitutional history? There absolutely are. My next book is on, of all people, William Howard Taft. And it turns out that William Howard Taft's debate with Teddy Roosevelt in 1912 about the imperial presidency defines our debates today. Roosevelt, as you said, took the position that the president can do anything the Constitution doesn't explicitly forbid. Taft is the last constitutionalist president who said the president can only do what the Constitution explicitly authorizes. He was a judge. He ended up as chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he views everything in constitutional terms. I think broadly, presidents since Franklin Roosevelt have embraced the imperial Mm -hmm. presidency. Nixon provoked a backlash of the kind you described and led Congress to pass lots of laws reigning in the presidency. I think we really are about to see a return to the, the virtues of that you know, Taftian, more constrained president who has to act with congressional support or else is going to get checked by the mm. courts. Let's, let's go back to the phones. Let's go to uh, John from Smyrna, Georgia. John, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, I, your producer asked a, a good mm-hmm. question uh, who would have compared the presidents to. Um, I would say <laughs> this is kind of a, a weird stretch, but uh, between Carter and Andrew Jackson. Uh, Carter, because uh, I think Trump's going to have a lot of trouble with uh, the legislative branch, 
um, and getting things done. Um, he's he's definitely uh, making no friends with anybody. Um, and uh, Andrew Jackson, because uh, he just kind of had a way of uh, barreling over people or running roughshod over people, uh, you know, American Indians and uh, just uh, people in the government uh, at the time. Yeah, apparently, um, apparently not I, as much I, as the I think, the, I think what you were talking about with Teddy Roosevelt, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's that's a very good uh, um, comparison because, you know, I've always kind of thought of Teddy Roosevelt as a, a, a you know, a, a gallant uh, American hero, but uh, um, sometimes, you know, he... he he did uh, kind of go out and stretch, uh, you know, get that power-hungry streak going. No, and it's, it's fascinating, mm-hmm. the, the, the language. You know, it goes back to, you know, the, uh, the, the fact that we have three you know, equal branches of government, which I think sometimes people in the executive need to be reminded. Um, you know, there are some presidents whose presidency is determined by their relationship with Congress. I, I wonder whether this is a presidency whose relationship might be determined by its relationship with the judiciary. If Congress will not stand up to the president, will the federal judiciary? Um, That is a central question, and I'm trying to think of the last president who really clashed a lot with the courts. The the most famous clash in the 20th century was Franklin Roosevelt, when the the court retreated in the face of his court-packing plan and started upholding the New Deal after having initially struck it down. And then I guess, you know, Nixon certainly— was undone by by the Supreme Court, which challenged him. So many people feel the Carter analogy is really interesting, although he had a Democratic Congress. So many feel that although congressional Republicans may check some aspects of Trump, if there is to be a check, it will have to come from the judiciary. And I believe that there are judges of both parties who are ready to exercise that check. Yeah, we, we, have, a lo- we have a lot of callers who actually called in uh, saying that the, the president they wanted to compare him with was, and then they listed a, a group of um, uh, foreign presidents, including people like Napoleon, but we were trying to limit this to, a, to American presidents. And also, we are dealing with somebody who is not in the mold of anyone we have seen before. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Jeffrey Rosen from the American Constitution Center. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, that's all for tonight's edition of Indivisible. Indivisible is Public Radio's new national conversation about life during the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Tomorrow night, Minnesota Public Radio's Kerry Miller will analyze what alternative facts do to our collective identity and cohesion as a democracy. Until then, you can keep this conversation going at IndivisibleRadio.com. We can leave us a comment or a voicemail anytime. And I'm Charlie Sykes. See you next week, assuming we're all still around. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.